0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. Let's go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We are in a series that we're going to be in for a while. We're going to be talking about foundations. And uh, this is going to be something that we're going to really uh, deal with uh, for a number of months, because this is very important. We're going to be talking about both individual foundations. We need a personal foundation in our life. But there's also corporate foundations. And we're going to be talking about both of these. Uh, because the fact is, the foundation of your Christian life will, will determine the weight that you can carry. Uh, that will will determine what God can do with your life. And so let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, and he says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation, and then he gives us the planks of the foundation, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, Uh, And of faith in God, instructions about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. And so in this passage, he says, let us leave the elementary teachings and go on. Uh, to maturity. Now, he's not saying that we leave them behind, we forget about them. It's like repentance is not a part of our life. But what he's saying is we don't want to have to keep laying these principles. We don't want to have to just stay at that level. These are the elementary teachings upon which we build the more, uh, if you would, the graduate studies of Christianity. He's talking about immaturity versus maturity, foundations and the structure. And we see this principle all through scripture. Uh, there's a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about both foundations and root systems, and both of these analogies are addressing the, the need for us to go deep in order to go higher. Uh, the principle is that what is beneath the ground and unseen will determine what is above the ground and others can enjoy. Uh, so we have this thing of uh, foundations and root systems. Uh, in the, Jeremiah chapter 1, turn there with me. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, I quoted this this morning, uh, but I didn't have the exact quote, and I want to read it to you. This is the calling of Jeremiah. Listen to what it says. The Lord tells him, he's commissioning him, uh, verse Verse nine, and then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. Verse 10, here's what I wanna look at. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms. And what is he gonna do with that assignment? He's going to uproot, tear down, destroy, and overthrow. Then he's gonna build and plant. So we have these two positives building and planting, agriculture and architecture, root systems and foundations. He's, he's being raised up to do those things, but before he does those, he, there's four negatives. He says, I'm going to, I'm assigning you to uproot, tear down, destroy, and overflow overthrow. And so he's going to excavate before he builds. He's going to dig the hole for the root ball before he put the roots in. And so we need we need to understand that in our personal life and even foundations in churches, that God has to remove some things before he instills some things. There's things that he has to uproot in our life before he can establish other things. We've got to embrace repentance and faith. And both of those are crucial. Now, we're going to get into that this morning. Before we do, I just want to address one principle in Scripture. Because you see this, what almost seems like confusion among some of the biblical writers. You see that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, no man can lay any foundation other than the foundation Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the foundation. But then the writer of the Hebrews, and some people think it's Paul, but I think they're wrong. Uh, You know, The writer of the Hebrews says, let us not lay again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death, faith in God and the others. So which is it, is it Jesus or is it repentance? Then we have Paul writing to the Ephesians, he says, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So now we have these three different passages that talk about what seems to be three different foundations. And they're not contradicting one another. They're not confused. Uh, the, the foundation, what God wants to build into our life is Christ. He is the bedrock upon which we must build our life. The method by which Jesus is established in our life is repentance, faith the instructions in baptism and so forth. So that is the methodology or the mindset that we need, to, we need to learn these principles because these are the foundational principles by which Jesus is established in our life. And then you have the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And there's apostolic and prophetic foundations, the primary builders of the New Testament as the church was established, as the New Testament church was being pioneered, was apostles and prophets. There's a partnership between those two gifts. But that's not just relegated to the early church. There is an element of apostolic and prophetic foundations anytime God wants to do something fresh in the earth. Whether he's going into a new region, a new place in the earth. Uh, A lot of people will say that apostles, they'll they'll say that apostles is just a a New Testament word for missionaries. And that's not necessarily so. They'll say, well, yeah, but the the meaning of the word is sent one. Well, then, if that's true, if we're going to relegate it to the, the basic Uh, definition gutted of its context, then we've got to say that pastors are the guys that take care of any livestock that the church may own because that just means you're pastoring, you're shepherding. Apostolic ministry is, Paul said, I'm an expert builder, I lay foundations. And so there's a foundational uh, element to apostolic ministry. That's true of the, the founding of the church, but it's also true when God wants to establish something new in a region, Uh, God will send in apostolic grace to establish something. And I would propose to you, even when God wants to uh, forge new ground doctrinally, not, not apart from scripture, but open up and emphasize a facet of scripture that may not be emphasized in a generation, God will raise up apostolic and prophetic teachers that will establish those truths. And so the builders are apostles and prophets. In that sense of the, the, the church, the wider church, the, the material of the building is Christ, and the method of the building and the individual believer and, and our, for us to be established in the work in the church is through repent, repentance, faith and so forth. So I do want to get that out of the way, because sometimes people read that and think, "Well are these guys in disagreement with each other? They're not. They all that all dovetails together. But what I want to really look at this morning is how do we get the foundation established in our life? This is so very important. Because what is above the ground, when you, when you analyze soil for foundation. What you're trying to analyze is what is the load? We're going to spread the load of this structure so that we can determine how high we go and how much the, it's going to provide stability for the occupants of that building. Because when you build a building and people begin to occupy that building, if it's unstable, people can really get hurt. That is true of individual lives as well. God wants to build something out of your life. There's there's things that God wants to do through your life that others can live in the good of, and they can enjoy the fruit of your life, the fruit of your root system and the shelter of what God does through your life. But if there's instability, what happens is God begins to build, people begin to occupy, and when that thing crashes down, people get hurt. And we've seen that throughout church history. And so God wants to establish things in our life. So how do we get this established in our life? This repentance and faith. And so we're going to look at, we're going to touch on this morning, and we'll get into it more in days to come. I think we'll be on this subject from different angles for a number of months. So what we want to look at this morning is the relationship between repentance and faith. In the Western church, we are big on faith, but too often neglect Repentance. And repentance is the excavation for the building that takes place through faith. And if we're not careful, we're trying to build on faulty ground. We're not unhinged from self. We look to Jesus to forgive us, but we've never really turned from ourself. And so we try to build a Christian life from a self-center and it creates instability. I was telling the earlier service, I, I spent a number of years working for Teen Challenge. We had this old building that we bought uh, back, they bought the building I think in 1987, I went to work there in 88, and uh, this, this building, it it was full of old stuff. It was an old monastery, and down in the laundry room, they had these three big machines, and you'd, we'd take all the clothes for all the guys and all the staff and their kids, and everybody did their laundry in this one laundry room, and there were these three big machines. The first one was this big old uh, washing machine that had a bent piece of metal welded on it, and someone wrote marker on the wall, hot, cold, so you'd throw your, your stuff in there and put some powder in there and you'd lock it up and if you're gonna do hot, you'd push it to the hot and you'd watch it kind of fill and then, then you'd watch it slosh around. You thought, okay, it looks clean. Now I'm gonna drain it. And the way you would rinse your soapy laundry was you kept putting water into it and letting it slosh and when there's no more bubbles, okay, it must be rinsed. Then you would put it in this spin dryer and you could hear that thing all over the building. 32,000 square feet of building, and you could hear the laundry room from anywhere. That thing would spin around, and then you would throw it into this blast furnace. You'd put it in there, and you'd light it. This flame would come out, and then out would come your blue jeans about this big because they'd shrink everything. You know, it was, This was some powerful stuff. But that spin dryer, was uh, it used to have a lid on it, and it was supposed to have a safety leather lever so that if you lifted the lid, it would immediately stop. Well, the lid was long gone. We were a bunch of guys, you know? And uh, so we, we weren't scared of that thing. Well, that thing would spin around, and it, it looked like the inside of a, a, a modern-day washer. You know, it would have a tub, and it had holes all along the edge, and then it had this, this pylon in the center, and you would evenly distribute all the wet clothes around the side, because if you didn't, you could hear it. It'd be And it, it would be banging along the side. And so you'd have to evenly distribute it and then you'd push the button and it'd and you oh, they're doing laundry. Well, there was a guy named Frank. He was the laundry guy. And Frank was not the most motivated individual. One day he was sitting there and the, that thing's spinning and he realized he had a wet washcloth that he'd forgotten to put in. So rather than walking over there, turning it off, and evenly distributing the weight around that, this, you know, that tub, what Frank did is he tried to make a three-pointer, and he, he succeeded. He threw it across the room, and when it flew across the room, it went into the tub and hit the edge. But here's the problem. This thing was at going at such a high rate of speed, and when that little washcloth went in and hit the edge, It created a new center around which this drum must now spin. Now, on the concrete floor, there were bolts and and nuts about this big, embedding it into the concrete, and then a big iron pipe that all the water would run through, and it disappeared down into the concrete. And when Frank threw that thing through the air, it hit the side, And it sounded like dynamite. Boom, you could hear it all over. And that thing went spinning across the room, snapped the bolts, slammed into the concrete wall, and it took a lot to fix it. And when that happened, I couldn't help but think of, this is the perfect analogy of the selfish life. We were created to spin around the center, which is God. You know, God, when we worship beginning of service we're commanded to worship and it's not because god is insecure he's not thinking i'm I'm not sure who i am sing one more song oh okay i'll last till next sunday you know just convince me that i'm still god god's not insecure in his identity he knows who he is we don't worship for him we worship for us god calls us to magnify the lord Our worship doesn't make him bigger like, one more song, I really need a big one this week. Keep pumping God up. No, it's it's not making God larger. Like a magnifying glass, when you look at a bug through a magnifying glass, it doesn't enlarge the physical nature of that bug. What it does is it enlarges it within your vision. It causes it to fill your vision and you can see details of that bug that you weren't seeing before. And worship is the same way. It enlarges God's nature in our vision. We're reminding us, not him, we're reminding ourselves of who he is and we're getting him back in the center where he belongs so that we we can live and move and have our being circling around him. But when we are the little wet washcloth, ah, it's all about me, and we try to make things circle around us, things break. And it's repentance that unhinges us from a self-center. Repentance causes us to no longer live for ourself. Now I said last week that there's, there's the Hebrew meaning of repentance used in the Old Testament and the Greek meaning of repentance used in the New Testament. The Hebrew word uh, has the idea of walking in another direction, doing an about face. Uh, behaving differently. The Greek word has the idea of thinking differently, believing differently. Which one is the biblical definition? Uh Uh-huh. It's both. Your believing determines your behaving. And so there's where our mind is changed, but that's gonna show up in our behavior. But there's also this idea of godly sorrow that is involved. And if there's never been any sorrow in your life, as you've evaluated your past, I would propose to you, you need to go back and do the first works. Because true repentance will cut you with grief as you begin to examine the selfish way you once lived. And it's that grief, it's that even that revulsion as God begins to show us our true nature, that that's what really creates repentance and we forsake that past life. And if that's never happened, then we have a tendency to gravitate towards that, back to that. So repentance has to do its work. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 juxtaposes godly sorrow over against worldly sorrow. And he's speaking to the Corinthians, and he's, saying, he's talking to them. He, he had to rebuke the Corinthians over a guy that was sleeping with his stepmother. And he's saying, man, this would make pagans blush, and you guys, are, you, you guys are celebrating the grace in which you live. And I'm telling you, you need to excommunicate this guy. And in actuality, you need to lay hands on him, and you need to turn him over to the devil for the destruction of his flesh, that hopefully in the end his spirit will be saved. That's what Paul said. That's pretty strong language. And if you look at what he's saying there, it matches Matthew 18 where it says at wherever two or three are gathered in his, my name, there I am in the midst of them. Paul's language, and then it talks about church discipline, Matthew 18. Paul says, when you are gathered together and I am there in spirit, lay your hands on this man and turn him over to the devil. It's talking about church authority in agreement to turn him over so that over to the consequences of his sin so that there would be alarm and then hopefully the circumstances will cause him to cry back out to God and get right. Second Corinthians is following up on this first letter and Paul says in chapter seven, he says, I'm glad you were made sorrowful. I'm glad you've experienced grief. The ESV uses grief, the NIV says sorrowful. I'm glad you you were sorry but not because you were just sorry, but because of what it wrought in your heart. Your godly sorrow wrought repentance. It caused you to repent and turn from that that way. And so he, he talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is different than godly sorrow. There are people who are sorry over their sin, but it's not a godly sorrow, it's a worldly sorrow, and here's the difference. Worldly sorrow is sorry over the consequences. Godly sorrow begins to grieve that it ever did those things. Worldly sorrow is sorry that it got caught. Godly sorrow is sorry that it ever did those things. And one of the fruits of worldly sorrow is that it may no longer participate in those activities, but it will retreat into a fantasy world where it continues to participate in those things, but suffer no real-world consequences. But godly sorrow begins to be grieved, and we begin to see the fruit of our own selfishness. And even in our heart, we say, God, I don't want anything to do with this. Lord, deliver me from this. It begins to realize our biggest struggle, our greatest danger, the, the enemy that we fight the most is not some external thing. It's us. That I am my worst problem. And I don't just need God to deliver me from these external temptations. I need delivered from me. And when I see that, repentance begins to happen in my life. And I no longer live from a self-center. I latch on to him. And when people fail to do that, they try to to build a Christian life on a self-center. They're still living for them, but God becomes a means to an end and not the end in itself. When we have godly sorrow, the end is God. I need you, God. I need need delivered from a self-center. Paul said this in Galatians 6.14. He said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. What Paul was saying, he said, my one glory is the thing that did the world a favor by getting rid of me. Because I was was a problem for the rest of the world. And if we can't really say that, then I would propose to you at best, repentance hasn't done its work. We need to be delivered from us. We are the problem. And when we really see that, there's a grief that begins to set in. And we begin to see those tendencies. And we need to let it do its work because that's how God excavates before he builds. Jeremiah was called to plant and to build, but before that he had to pluck up, destroy, overthrow, demolish. And God wants to come in and do a deep work in our heart so that he can overthrow these tendencies I was just reading recently, again, uh, A.W. Tozer's book, uh, Pursuit of God. I believe it's chapter two. It's called The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. I'm telling you, that chapter is worth the price of the book. But he uses this, man, such a descriptive phrase. He talked about the tough, fibrous root of self, the tough fibrous root of self, you try to pull that thing up and it just fights back. Well, what has to happen is we need a, we need a revelation of our own sinfulness. And when we see that, and, and I talked about this last week, this tendency to say, well, I'm really a good person. I just had, I had, I had a few bad, you know, hard knocks in life. Or I'm really a good person. There's no one good, no, not one. None of us can say, well, I'm really a good person, but... We were all living from a self-center. And that was the, the, the source of all our problems. And until we realize that, then we will struggle going around and coming back to the same old things. There has to be repentance Now repentance is built upon the fear of the Lord. So I was telling the first service, if if I was very organized, I'd have some huge styrofoam uh, props up here and this would say repentance and over here it would say faith and underneath repentance because repentance is built upon the bedrock called the fear of the Lord. The flip side of that coin is the justice of God. Love over here, it's based on mercy, the mercy of God. The flip side of that is the love of God. And the two great motivators in the New Testament are fear and love. We see it throughout the scriptures. Paul said in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, the love of Christ constrains me. He's talking about what motivates him in ministry. Two verses Before after, I think it was two verses before he says, knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. Both of them are motivators in his life. But I would propose to you that faith and love are only as deep as your grasp of justice and the fear of the Lord. The love of God is birthed in our heart by having a revelation of God's love for us. It's very clear in scripture. We love him because he first loved us. The cause of my affection for God is a revelation of his for me. That's why Martin Luther said, it takes God to love God. God had to show me his love for me and and it caused me to begin to love him back. But my revelation of the love of God is contingent upon my understanding of his forgiveness. He who is forgiven much loves much. Why? Why? See, I don't understand the magnitude of his forgiveness if I don't understand the magnitude of my sin. If I think I got about 16 ounces of sin, then it took 16 ounces of forgiveness to balance the scales. But the more I see my sinfulness, my, my selfishness, that my, utter, my, my absolute commitment to making Dave happy at the expense of everybody who loved me prior to meeting Christ. And that was the truth. I was willing to walk over the, the hearts of the people who loved me the most. That I said some of the cruelest things to my parents to get them to back off, because it was all about me. And I needed to see that, and the more I saw that, the fact that God was able to balance the scales and forgive me, all of a sudden, the mercy of God became enormous. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The measure of God's love was the magnitude of his gift. He didn't just love you a little bit, so he took care of it. He so loved you that he gave the one thing he couldn't replace his uncreated son. And Isaiah said it pleased the father to crush the son for our sake. But if you only see your sin as a little bit, then you appreciate it a little bit. Thanks God, high five. But when we see it for what it is, we're blown away by the sacrifice that God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Wasn't that we were inclined to be good people and seek for him? The only reason we have any desire to know God is because of God. That he, he drew us to himself. And when we began to realize that, all of a sudden, his forgiveness, we're forgiven much. You see, I've known people that were, you know, I'm gangsters. You know, people that they had broken all the Ten Commandments and most of them many times. And I would see them encounter God and they would walk with God for a short time and drift away. I've also known little old ladies that the most serious external thing they ever did is steal some cookies out of their mama's cookie jar when they were a little girl. But yet they had this deep affection for Jesus. They walked close with him. Well, how do we reconcile those realities with he was forgiven much loves much. It's because this little old lady had a revelation of how much she was forgiven and this gentleman that broke moral law again and again did not. He had a shallow perception of his own sinfulness. Therefore, it was a shallow measure of grace that forgave him and it produced a shallow measure of love. So this whole side of of the ledger, the, the uh, repentance, the love of God, all of this is contingent upon laying this foundation of the fear of the Lord and of repentance firmly. One of the great, the great enemies today of repentance in the Western world is psychology. And I'm saying even Christian psychology. And I believe in psychology. Psychology. Psychology is nothing more, nothing less than studying the soul of man. If anybody should be psychologists, it should be those of us who are into saving souls, right? If you look, at, you know, psychology, the 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 most common definition is the study of the mind and behavior. In other words, they're connecting the dots between what people think and how they behave. Your believing determines your behaving, so let's tweak your, be- your believing so we can change your behaving because your behaving's bothering the rest of us, and it's not going well for you either. That's psychology. But here's the danger. You get into psychology, and there's also this whole arm of psychology about being Conditioned. And there's truth to it. In other words, the way you were raised and the things you've experienced have conditioned your mind and your emotions in such a way that you begin to operate and you begin to behave this way. And it's really rooted in past circumstances, pleasure and pain. The pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And because some of these things have caused great pain, or some other things, you you got into things that caused great pleasure, even though they were illicit, there's that you're conditioned to keep following those. And there's validity to that, because what that can do is show us, okay, these are the areas of my vulnerability, and I need God to tend to those. But what's dangerous is we begin to understand that, and over time we begin to think, okay, as that we this this compassion, even this sympathy begins to arise and we begin to look at those things as excuses. And we accommodate it in others and even more dangerously in ourselves. And I've seen believers do this. I remember sitting with this guy. He had committed adultery on his wife many times. I'd known him for years and we'd sit down and talk and finally he'd he'd come to me, man Dave, I got this revelation. The the Lord showed me this thing. This is why I've been doing it all these years. And man, we'd be excited, man. Finally, he's gonna be free. Six months later, it'd come out. There's his name in the newspaper. Got arrested for seeing prostitutes. And this Christian man would break the heart of his wife again. And I began to recognize over a number of years walking with this guy through this stuff that he was always looking for the silver bullet, some revelation And until then, the last time I really sat down and really dug into this thing with him, I realized that he was looking at it as, until I understand what drives me, I'm not responsible for my behavior. And that, my friend, is a lie. Responsibility means you have the ability to respond. And you may how you may be pushed to the edge of temptation more than someone else because of your woundedness in your past. And psychology, good biblical counseling, can reveal to you your vulnerability, but it's not an excuse. You have the obligation to serve the Lord. And what's gonna cause that, what's gonna awaken that in your heart is the fear of the Lord. When you recognize that God is just, God is holy, god is omniscient he sees everything you can't hide anything from him god is forgiving yes but he's also just and he will what a man sows he will reap this is new testament that when you sow to the flesh from the flesh you reap destruction that you're inviting negative consequences into your life. And furthermore, there, that's called the law of the harvest. There is a Lord of the harvest that is actually balancing those scales, that God will make sure that there's consequences and hope that he can turn you so you don't have to suffer the ultimate consequence of hell. And when we begin to realize that, when we, the fear of the Lord begins to be birthed in our heart, all of a sudden, every decision, every temptation is evaluated within the light of that, and we realize sin is never worth it. I've told you this before. When I was living on the streets, I, 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 I was hungry, man. I, I didn't have anything to eat. I had, didn't have any money. I'd lost my job. I was a drunk Every time I got money, I'd spend it on booze, but I still needed to eat occasionally. So I went into a a gas station and knowing, you know, because I'm a health food nut, I was going to steal some Twinkies. And I went to grab the Twinkies and this thought entered my mind. If I take that, I'm going to pay with a Twinkies worth of flesh out of my hide because I know that what a man sows, he will reap. That was not the way I usually thought. Had I been thinking that way, I would have never ended up a homeless alcoholic. But what was going on is there was a church full of ladies praying for me and my eyes were beginning to open and all of a sudden every activity of my life was being evaluated under the oversight of an all-seeing holy God. And I realized I'm in trouble. I've got to get my life aligned with him or things aren't going to work. We need the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is a New Testament concept. 2 Corinthians talks about perfecting holiness in the fear of God, cleansing ourselves of that which defiles the flesh and the spirit. Cooperating with sanctification is one way one translates it, puts it. Uh, un, uh, for, with the fear of the Lord. If as I'm walking in the fear of the Lord, and I'm, let me just let me land it here. If your theology, if your view of God has no room for that, if your view of God, you never think of, oh man, God is a good father. He's not an indulgent dingbat that will just let me do whatever I want, still give me my inheritance. That God is a, God is a good father and he is gonna make sure I am qualified for what I need and he's going to discipline those he loves. If you don't have a view of that and that God will not tolerate that type of behavior, he will deal with you behind the scenes and deal with you and deal with you. But if it comes to the point where he can't correct you behind the scenes, he will publicly expose you. And if you don't have that as part of your view of God, you do not understand the biblical God. You've got a misconception and it enables you to harden your heart. And so the foundation of repentance is this view of the justice as well as the mercy, the fear of God as well as God's love, eliciting within us repentance and faith. Faith works by love, Paul said. But I see the love of God through the measure of his forgiveness. And I can only understand the measure of his forgiveness to the extent that I see my need for it. And so, if I don't have this bedrock laid in my life, I end up with shallow faith, a struggle in my walk. I keep returning. I'm going around. I'm taking cycles, and I'm just going back. The way Proverbs says it, it's as a dog that returns to its vomit. It wants to eat it again. It's still a cheeseburger. It's just not going to change. Taste the same the second time. Just keeps. Hey, it's the Bible. I'm sorry. It keep going back. To that stuff, But it's because we don't have f- repentance laid in our life. So I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. I want to pray over you as we look at these truths. I'm going to ask Pastor Adam to come. Father, Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I'm asking God that you would give us a revelation of your nature. Lord, awaken within us the full counsel of God. Lord, let us not be those who only see your love but are ignorant of your justice. Lord, help us to see you for who you are. Give us a revelation of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 2 says, understand the fear of the Lord. It's a concept to be understood. But Isaiah talks about the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And Lord, we're asking for that as well that environmental manifestation of your presence where you come in such a way that we see you, that other side of your character, Lord, that would rot within us repentance. And Lord, I'm asking for a rock-solid foundation in this house, Lord, in us as individuals and us corporately. And Lord, do that work. Do whatever you need to do we trust you, Lord, so that we can bring forth the fruit you so desire. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.